Welcome to the Vineyard Altoona podcast. If you have any questions or just want more information, you can visit our website at vineyardaltuna.org or any of our social media platforms at Vineyard Altoona. And now, here's Derek with the message. We're starting our Lent series. You guys saw the sign, you know, of course we paid for all the advertising at the Super Bowl, um, $20 million. You guys are so generous. No, uh, these people have started this He Gets Us campaign. You guys have seen it, but we sort of felt like there's a sense in which uh, we'd like to sort of participate with what the church across the country is doing and, and trying to show people that Jesus understands who we are. That said, today what I'm going to talk about is that Jesus understands the anxiety that we feel, okay? But before I talk about that, one of the things I'm just acutely aware of is that when you go to talk about anxiety, there's a spiritual force behind that. And so I recognize, just even in the room now, that, that a lot of us, and maybe you could attest to this, and maybe you're like, oh, I don't know what you're talking about, that's okay. But a number of us, maybe you sort of feel a little, like you came in, you're like, something feels a little off. I feel a little bit anxious, I'm not really sure why. I'm a little uncomfortable, something is not right. And so I just wanna pray against the spirit of anxiety, okay? Is that okay with you? Anybody have any problem with that? Okay, cool. Let's just pray, okay? So Lord, I do just welcome you into this space. And we just invite you to take your place. And I just bind now a spirit of anxiety. Anything that we brought in with us, any way that the enemy would seek to to derail us, I just bind that in the name of Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would pour out your love into this space. Lord, we know perfect love casts out fear. And so, Lord, I pray that you would pour your love out right here in this space. God, that you would touch us in the deepest places, that we would feel safe, that we would feel comfortable in your presence. Fill us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Don't get that one on the tape. All right, good? How do you feel? Feel better? Yeah, okay, cool. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to start, and I want to tell you two stories, okay? You guys like my stories? That's like story time. I like telling stories. Um, Two stories I want to tell you. When I was in college, I went to a school that was an hour away from my parents' house, okay? I lived on campus, and... Uh, so through the week, I was on campus, but then I had a job that was back where my parents lived. So every weekend, I would go home, and I would uh, work my job at the airport on Saturday and Sunday, and then my airport job would end Sunday evening, and I'd get in the car, drive the hour north, and you know, it's, it's a nice time. I like music, and I mean, back in those days, it was a, a different collection of music, um, and, and we can talk about that another time, but just rocking some music, rolling up the highway, cruise control on, nothing going on. And so this one night, I was driving, and not a car for miles. I couldn't see any headlights. I'm just cruising along, jamming out to my music. I want to rock and roll all night, right? Um, and I wasn't really paying a whole lot of attention. And out of sort of my peripheral view, I see something walk into the, the headlights, uh, into the front of my headlights. 
And I freaked out, and I stood on the brakes, and I slid on the highway, and I watched as a deer bounced off the side of my car. So I pulled over to the side of the road, catch my breath a little bit, waiting for my heart rate to come down from like a 1,000, right? Have you ever had that happen? Now, your body does something in situations like that to protect you. Did you know that? Like, normally, if you see something, you evaluate it, and, and if you're like me, you evaluate it for far too long. Just ask Abby. Um, you think about it forever, and you assess every side of it, and then eventually you make a decision about what you want to do. But in some situations, when you feel uniquely threatened, right, when your well-being feels threatened, your body bypasses that thought process, right? And you just kick into action, right? Had I gone through thought process, I would have also gone through the deer, right? Make sense? But my body reacted. I bypassed thought process. It's an anxiety response, right? Your body is programmed to do this. When you feel a threat, that's the first story. And that's a really cool deal, isn't it? Isn't that a cool, like a, a, a cool design in human nature? That your body can like protect yourself by bypassing thought and just reacting. That's great. It's amazing. Keeps me from uh, running into a deer. Let me tell you the other story that I want to tell you. When I was a kid, we grew up, my mom was super frugal. My mom's going to be here next week, so y'all be nice to her. Don't tell her that I, no, you can tell her I told this story. My mom was super frugal. So we grew up, my mom was cutting coupons. We got the Sunday paper. Anybody cut coupons? Do they have coupons anymore? Right. Did you have like the accordion file full of coupons that were like alphabetized by the store? I mean, my mom had coupons for days. It was amazing, right? So my mom was like very careful to like save us money, which meant most of my childhood meant that I was eating at home, Right? We ate a lot of macaroni and cheese, you can tell, Um, right, fish sticks and all the things that she could get that felt nice but were cheap, right? And so this was most of my childhood, and yet every once in a while, we would go out to eat. And we went out to eat, it was tied usually to something celebratory, like this is a big deal that we're going out to eat. Like, dad got home and he made some extra money. We're going to go out to eat. And my dad's favorite restaurant was this Chinese restaurant called House of Chong. And we didn't know how to behave in House of Chong. Um, But it was amazing. And I began to associate eating out with feeling like we were doing okay. That's not really the way things are now, but that's what I associated. And so when I became an adult... One of the important things for me to know that I was doing okay was that we went and eat out. Again, you can tell. (laughs) That was a good one. Very excited about that laugh. Um, But you, you could tell, like, we would go out to eat, and it felt like we were doing well, and so we would go out to eat all the time. And I didn't have any idea that I had made this association that that meant we were doing well. And then last year, I quit my job, and I came to work here full-time, and we actually had to live by a budget, and we got to, like, the summer, and we realized that the budget was red, which is not good. And for my wife, it was like, well, cut the eating out budget, make it zero. And internally, I was like, panic, panic, red, we are not okay. And I reacted. Why? 
because I felt threatened. And my brain bypassed thought and went to reaction. What protected me from running into a deer was what actually caused me to react to something that wasn't a threat to my well-being. Was, were we not going to be able to eat? No, not at all. We weren't going to be able to go out and pay somebody else to serve us. Do you see this? The thing that, that is designed in my humanity to protect me actually creates an anxiety response in spaces where it's not necessary. What I would bet is we all have that kind of thing happen at some time or another. Some of you are like, I don't, I don't know that I do. Well, let, let, let's, sort of like, let's sort of like pay attention to the last three years, right? In two weeks, two weeks, it'll be exactly three years since we shut everything down for COVID. And you all stayed at home for a little while, and you watched stuff online, and everybody got more anxious, didn't they? Everybody got a little bit more anxious. Everybody had more time on their hands. And then people said, hey, you should probably start wearing masks, and everybody got a little bit more anxious. And people started saying, well, you shouldn't go out. This, we don't know anything about this. There's no vaccine. There's none of these things. And everybody got a little bit more anxious. And then George Floyd happened, right? The murder of George Floyd happened. And what happened? The top popped off, didn't it? Do you remember? Three years ago, this coming summer, the top popped off. The whole nation lost their minds. Not you guys, everybody else. Right? And this anxious response happened because that thing inside of us works. See, psychologists for a long time have been saying in our nation we're getting less and less capable of managing anxiety and dealing with our own emotional health. As a society, we're getting less and less emotionally healthy. And this isn't in the past five years. This is like in the past 75 years they've been watching this. So increasingly, as a culture, we are less and less able to manage anxiety, and we're worse at dealing with one another and emotional health. Have you seen this? As I point that out, do you, do you remember some of the things that happened inside of you over those, the, the last three years even? Because anxiety is cumulative. It just stacks on top of itself. You remember some of those things. And the question I want to ask today is how do we move forward? Does Jesus have anything to offer us when it comes to anxiety? Can Jesus even relate? We're beginning this series today for the season of Lent called He Gets Us. Like I said, we're borrowing heavily on, uh, on the, the national campaign. But what I would say, if you're curious, you too can get a nice-looking T-shirt for the cost of forgiving someone. Uh, seriously, they, they don't charge you money, but they do charge you in acts of kindness and, and forgiving someone. So that was what I chose to get my free shirt was to forgive someone, which I have done. Um, but if you want a shirt like this, you can get one. Go to the He Gets Us website. But the idea behind this series is that we don't have a God who doesn't know what it's like to be us. See, the beauty of following Jesus is that we actually serve and follow a God who knows what it's like to be human, who knows what it's like to be you with all the struggles that you go through every single day. 
Hebrews 4.15 says this. It says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. You see, Jesus understands us, and he gives us a model to follow. And so when it comes to situations that produce anxiety, Jesus was no stranger, right? All you have to do is read through the Gospels, and you just see that everybody is challenging Jesus' identity, and everybody's challenging Jesus' theology, and everybody's after Jesus' life. I mean, that'll create anxiety in you, won't it? Somebody wants to kill you? That's like it's pretty anxiety-producing. I would say it's universal. So Jesus understands what it's like to be in situations that produce anxiety, and yet he offers us a way forward. And that's what I want to talk about today. I'm calling today's message, You Don't Have to Be an Anxious Person. You don't have to be an anxious person. Let's pray again and just invite God to illuminate his word as we talk about this, okay? So Jesus, I thank you that you have come, that you know what it's like to be us, and God, that you offer us a way forward. And so I pray, God, that you would put power on this message, that you would speak through me, and God, that you would provide freedom and release from captivity for those who are hearing. So come into this room, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Look with me today at Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. And we're going to look down near uh, beginning at verse 25. But there's a very unfortunate break. Do you guys, when you look in your Bible, do you have like a weird break? You're like, uh, oh, No. There's a very unfortunate break in Scripture right at Matthew 6.25. And you're like, I don't understand. When you look at verse 25 in your Bible, it has this heading that says, do not worry. Right? Those of you looking at it, some of you may have something a little bit different, like some heading that Jesus didn't say, but it was added later by somebody to help it be readable. Right? And verse 25 starts with this word, therefore. Right? which is a really unfortunate place to break a section because you use the word therefore in the middle of an argument, don't you? Like if you say a thing and you say, because of the thing I just said, therefore I'm going to say another thing, right? And they're connected. And the people in, who made the, the uh, subdivisions in your Bible put a break there. But we're going to not leave that break, okay? We're going to start in verse 24 because it's really important. It makes a whole lot of sense for what we're looking at. Verse 24, chapter 6, says this. It says, no one can serve two masters. That's the context. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And then specific context, you cannot serve both God and money. Verse 25. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why worry about clothes? Do you, uh, see how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin, and yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, 
Will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself each day, has enough trouble of its own. See, Jesus starts out by saying you can't serve two masters. He says you got to choose who you're going to serve. There's an old song that says you got to serve somebody. You could probably tell me who it's by. Bob Dylan, right? you got to serve somebody. you got to choose. Thank you. Who you're going to serve. And so when he gets to 25, his therefore is like, I'm believing that you're going to choose to serve God. The whole rest of this is based on Jesus assuming that what your decision is, is you're going to serve God. And so he says, if you're going to serve God, do not worry. The word here for worry shows up six times in this passage. It means it's important. It means it's what it's all about. The word is merimnau, which means to worry or to be anxious. In the Bible, if they're going to use a word in the New Testament about being anxious, this is the word they use. And I want to make a clarification here. I'm not today talking about anxiety disorders, okay? That would sort of fall under the realm of like mental health. We talked a little bit about that last week. I am not a doctor. I have never been a doctor, and I don't play one on TV. So I'm not going to give you like doctor advice here. Okay, can you just, can we just make sure we have that qualification? I'm not a doctor. You can put that on there. But what I want to offer you, if you have an anxiety disorder, a mental health disorder, uh, what Jesus advises here I think would be helpful, even for mental or anxiety disorders. That's not primarily what we're talking about though here. See, in this passage, Jesus is addressing the anxiety we all contend with when we perceive a threat. It's the thing that happens inside of us as soon as our bodies feel threatened. But he's not primarily talking about when a deer runs out in front of your car. He's talking about all of these things that we worry about. All the situations where we struggle to trust God. Verse 25, look at that again. He says, therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? He says, listen, if you have chosen to trust and serve God, why are you worried about the little things like food and drink and clothes? Why are you worried about these things if you trust God? But there's a deeper question here. Do you see the deeper question that's here? The deeper question is this. If you're worried about the little things, if you're full-on anxious about the little things. If you're constantly triggered by things that are not actually a threat to your well-being, who are you serving? That's the underlying question that Jesus is asking. He says, if you're spinning about in anxiety and your mind won't shut off, who are you serving? I bet we could, like, connect to that, can't we? Like, do you ever have that? Like, you get in situations, I don't know about you, but like there's a lot of times I find myself, my brain is just spinning. 
It won't shut off. And, you know. And the question I have to ask is, wait a minute, who am I serving right now? Am I serving the God who loves me, who's going to take care of me? Or am I serving myself? Who's in charge here? I want you to pay attention to the fact that God is, or Jesus is not saying here that these needs are illegitimate. He's not saying, hey, you shouldn't ever, like, you know, it's illegitimate that you want food and drink and clothes. That's not at all what he's saying, right? He's not saying that food doesn't matter, drink doesn't matter, clothes don't matter. He says these are legitimate needs, but what he's questioning is this. If you're anxious about these legitimate needs, who are you trusting to fulfill them? If you're anxious about legitimate needs, who are you trusting to fulfill them? You see, anxiety, and specifically the reasons for and source of anxiety, can tell you a lot. If you pay a whole lot of attention to what's making you anxious, you can learn a lot about yourself, a whole lot about yourself. Anxiety comes when you try to meet legitimate needs in illegitimate ways. Anxiety comes when you try to meet a need that God has given you in your own illegitimate ways. And it's not just about food, it's not just about clothes, it's not just about drink. We all have all kinds of needs that God has put inside of us that we try to meet in illegitimate ways, don't we? Every one of us has a need to feel like we matter, right? Deep down, you have a need to feel like your existence matters. But if you spend your life trying to find that you matter in jobs, in other people, in the organizations that you're a part of, they will never satisfy that need. And you'll be spinning as anxious your whole life. It's trying to meet a legitimate need in an illegitimate way. Do you see that? Does that make sense to you? Or how about this one? Every one of us has a need to feel like we're safe. Right? Every one of us needs to feel safe. It's very, very important that we feel safe. It's a God-given need. And yet, if you serve safety, if you spend your whole life trying to make yourself safe, you'll always be anxious. You can't get enough, you know, window and door locks and alarms on all your, your vehicles. and all. You can't get enough things to make you safe to be all the way safe. It's a legitimate need that you're trying to meet in an illegitimate way. Does that make sense to you? Or how about this one? Let me give you another one. Every one of us has this deep, deep need to feel loved. Every one of us. One thing I know about every one of you in this room is you have a need to feel loved. But if you spend your entire life trying to make other people love you, you will never be loved enough, and you will be anxious all the time. Because what happens if somebody doesn't like you or love you? Now you've got to make them like you and love you. Do you see this? You're meeting a legitimate need in an illegitimate way. This is important to pay attention to. And the reason that these all are anxiety-producing is because the, the legitimate needs that God has given you are intended to be filled by God himself. He's the only one who can fill your needs. He's the only one who can take care of your needs. These needs are intended to drive you into the arms of God so that he can fill them. 
The needs you have are a chasm in your soul that's intended to connect you to God. And I know a lot of us know people who are chasing these all over the place, right? I have a need to feel good. I have a need to, to, for somebody to love me. And you just watch them, their lives spiral out of control because they're going from one hit to the next. They're going from one person to the next. And they're like, somebody love me. Somebody make me feel okay. Have you seen this? Have you been through this? A room like this, I imagine there's a lot of us who, have a, who can point our finger to spaces where that's what we've done. One of the early church fathers, Augustine, who lived in the 5th century, said this. He said, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. See, all of the legitimate needs that you have were created by God to be filled by God. And if you find yourself constantly struggling with anxiety, it's likely an indication that you're trying to meet a legitimate need in an illegitimate way. And if you'll pay attention to that, you'll learn a lot about yourself. It's like drinking salt water to cure your thirst. It just never satisfies. See, the, the legitimate way to meet legitimate needs is to live from a posture of trust in God that God will provide all the things you need. Trust God. Is there a more trite saying sometimes? Trust, just trust God. It's real easy to tell people to trust God when you don't wrestle with the things that you're asking them to trust God with, isn't it? Isn't it real easy to tell people to trust God for companionship when you're going to go home to your family? Oh, just trust God. He'll provide friends and, and companions for you. It's real easy to tell people who are struggling with their finances, oh, just trust God when your bank account balance is good, right? Isn't that easy? It's pretty easy. I've done it. It's Pretty simple. Tell people to trust God when you have more than enough for yourself. And meanwhile, they're trying to figure out how they're going to make the next rent payment. It becomes a trite thing to say, right? Oh, just, just trust God. He'll, he'll make sure that, that you have all the food and the drink that you need while my refrigerator is full. It's an entirely different thing to tell yourself to trust God when you don't have any more money. When you don't have any friends. Well, you don't have any food. It's a different thing, isn't it? Do you see how that's a different thing? You see, Jesus knows that we struggle to trust God. It's hard to trust God. So here's what he says. He gives an object lesson, verse 26. He says this. He says, look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon, in all of his splendor, was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown in the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Jesus makes the case that God will provide for you by saying, look at the things that are less valuable than you. Aren't these things less valuable than you? And I think some of us are probably like, I, I, I don't know. Aren't these things less valuable? But look at how God takes care of them. 
He says, I want you to know that God is going to provide for you. Look at the birds. Y'all are worried about food. Look at the birds. God provides the food for the birds, and they don't even like plant fields and harvest the fields and put it away so they have more for later. But God makes sure that they eat. He says, if he does that for them, what will he do for you? Or he's like, you know, what are you worried about clothes for? Look at the flowers. God provides them with so much splendor, and they're so much less valuable than you are. If God clothes the flowers like this, would he not take care of you? And I think some of us are like, ah, I'm not sure. I want to think that he would. This is what Jesus says. He says, God takes care of the little things. God takes care of those things that are less valuable. And God takes care of the things that have less ability. So you can trust him to take care of you. But I want to point something out here. I read right past this for most of my life. And probably, and I don't know, maybe you guys have seen this before, but I think it's really important. Jesus is not saying that to trust God is just to sit back and wait till he does it for you. You're like, I don't see that in there. Watch this. He says, in verse 26, he says, look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns. They don't sow, reap, or store away in barns, but you do. And there's no condemnation for you doing that. That's a thing that God gave you. You're supposed to keep doing that. He says in verse 28, see how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin. You know, like spin, like, you know, the, the making clothes. You spin thing, right? I don't know. Do people still do that? Do they still spin stuff? Probably somewhere they do, right? He says, they don't labor or spin, but, they, but you do. God has given you a way to make sure that you have clothes. He's not saying that you just sit back and wait and maybe God will take care of it someday. I'll just keep praying. That's it. I'm just going to keep praying and maybe God will do it. See, what's so common for people who experience anxiety, and maybe you're like this, is that we work frantically on our own to make it okay, right? Are you that person? Like, I get anxious and I do all the things that I can think of to do that might make it okay. Right? A number of you, I'm like, and once I've done all the things that I've tried to do to make it okay and I've made this giant mess, then I get to this last resort. Well, I guess I got to trust God now, right? And we go from this pole, working like crazy, to this pole. I'm just not going to do anything until God does it, right? I've had so many conversations with people who are wrestling to get out of addictions, wrestling to get out of of struggles to pornography and all kinds of things, and they're like, well, I'm just praying that God will take it away from me. So we go from do all the things to do none of the things. And do you know both of those sides are ditches on either side of the narrow road that is the Christian life? Doing all of the things frantically is just as much of a ditch as doing none of the things and hoping maybe the situation will change. You see, as followers of Jesus, we get invited into being co-laborers with God. So there's a different way. Look at verse 31. This is what Jesus says. There's a different way. 
He says, do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? Don't frantically panic, for the pagans run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But what do we do? Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you. You see, not doing anything and hoping God fixes it is as much of an error as doing all the things and not consulting with what God wants to do. But the narrow road is to go, I'm going to focus on the rule and reign of God in my life and the community around me. I'm going to pay attention to how God invites me to live my life, and I'm going to be responsive to that. And so I'm going to seek God, and when he tells me what to do, I'm going to do it. How do we deal with anxiety? How do we deal with situations that make us anxious? We don't work frantically and we don't just sit in a closet and pray until God changes it. We look to God and we respond to what he invites us to. It's so simple, but it's not easy. We look to God and he cares about you. He loves you. He actually wants your life to go well. Do you know that? Actually wants your life to go well. So what does this look like in practice? What does this look like in practice? I've shared some of this story before, but I think it's really helpful here. A number of you guys have heard me tell the story that in third grade I was in the gifted class and some group of people my parents, teachers, administrators, moved me from the gifted class to a normal class. But nobody told me why. I went to school one day, I started in the gifted class, and I finished the day in the not gifted class. Nobody told me, hey, you're being moved for any reason. In my third grade, my eight-year-old mind, what I decided that meant was everybody around thinks I'm stupid, that I'm not smart enough to be in this place. But I knew I was smart, so I decided from that moment on that I'm going to prove to everyone that I'm smart, that I know my stuff, that I know what I'm doing, because I know I'm smart. People just don't know. And the fact of the matter is, what I ended up doing, the base level desire there was, I'm going to prove to everyone that I have worth and value because I'm smart. So I went around, after I was eight years old, trying to prove to everyone around me that I had worth and value. It's a legitimate need that I was trying to meet in an illegitimate way. I've told this story before. But over the course of my life, that hum was always in the background. You're not smart. People think you're stupid. That guy looks smarter than you. You better prove, him that, prove that that's wrong. All the time. Not actively. I'm not sitting here like, but that's the reaction, right? So the threat that I felt was that everyone around didn't think I had worth or value. So I'm going to prove to you that I have worth and value. I'm going to show you how smart I am. And if somebody looks smarter, I'm going to tear them down. And what's tricky is that I was completely unaware of this. It just operates in the background. Somebody challenges my intelligence, just react. 
And maybe I noticed that I reacted and maybe I don't. And then people would get away from me. That's not very nice, right? People don't like being like, hey, I thought I was helping you. You were a jerk to me. Over a period of time, people just disappear from my life. And then about four years ago, I was going through the emotionally focused process. And what I discovered, I feel like God revealed was, hey, from this moment, this thing happened. And since that day, for more than 30 years, you've been living trying to find worth and value and making other people believe you're smart. Ugh. That's gross, isn't it? I think about that for just a minute. That's how I have been trying to seek worth and value. I was trying to get a legitimate need met in illegitimate ways. Now remember, I can either frantically try to fix myself, frantically try to prove my worth and value to everyone around, which is repulsive. Ask my wife. She's kind to me. But even she thought that was repulsive. Or I can just go, well, God, I see this thing. Maybe you'll change me someday. Till then, I'm just going to keep being the jerk I've been. So how do I fix this? Like, how do you go about undoing 30 years, more than 30 years of seeking to get legitimate needs met in illegitimate ways? How do you reverse that? Because by this point, it's habit, right? It's habitual. Like, I don't even think about it. It just comes out. What I did was create a practice. What I recognized in myself as the legitimate need was that I needed to have worth and value. The illegitimate way that I was trying to get that worth and value was by proving it to everyone else around me. And so the thing that needed to get fixed was I needed to relocate where it was that I was getting my worth and value. So I created this practice where I would get up every morning and sit quietly with God until he would speak worth and value over my life. Every day. Sometimes it took longer than others. And I would wait until God spoke worth and value over my life. And some of you will go, well, that sounds like you're just praying and waiting for God to fix it. And that would be true, except from that reservoir that got built, from knowing that God believed that I have worth and value, I could go into the world and I would start to see places where normally I would rise up and try to prove myself and self-promotion and say, you should value me, look how smart I am. And I would see it, sometimes in the rearview mirror, right? Sometimes I'd see it after I did it, and I'd go, oh, man. And the practice I would engage in as God gave me grace to do so would be to go back and say, hey, I wasn't who I wanted to be there. You know, I'm somebody who has historically tried to seek worth and value by proving how smart I am to people, and that's what I was doing there. But I think God is inviting me to be the kind of person who could find my worth and value in who he says I am. And so I'm sorry for the way that I acted there. That was wrong. Can you tell me what the impact of that was on you? This is the practice I engaged in, still engage in. And then people would tell you stuff. You're like, that sounds painful. Yeah, it's terribly painful. But it's walking in active resistance against this way that I'm trying to meet a legitimate need in an illegitimate way. It's a practice. And I'm not there yet. I still struggle with this. 
But what I know is that I've come a long, long way. And with God's grace, hopefully one day, what comes out naturally is that I can celebrate people who are smart and have good ideas. That I don't have to check my motives. That genuinely, I live from such a place that I know that God loves me. That I'm living from such a place that I'm seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That I know that the need I have to feel worth and value is met in him. I'm getting there. I'm seeing glimpses of this. That's what it looks like in practice. What does it look like for you? Because I would bet, knowing what I know, is that a lot of us have these spaces, and maybe you don't know about it, but everybody around you does. A lot of us have these spaces where we're trying to get legitimate needs met in illegitimate ways, and we're putting a demand on everyone around us to meet a need that only God can fill. I said, the people around you know. They love you in spite of it. What is it for you? What is the legitimate need that you're trying to meet somewhere else? Because that's the space of anxiety that you'll, you'll experience. And Jesus says, if you serve God, you don't have to worry. You don't have to be an anxious person. Do you know that? You don't have to be an anxious person. You can battle with anxiety, but not be an anxious person. Thank you again for choosing the Vineyard Altoona podcast. We're so excited to see how God will release his kingdom in and through you today for the glory of Jesus Christ. With this, be blessed, and we'll see you next time.